the dominant COVID narrative is starting to fail, right? It's starting to fade. And the challenge I think is going to be this, is this just the end of the COVID regime? Or is this the end of the ideas that led us to this kind of problem? Are we going to have the guts to say, no, 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 at the, at the heart of this problem, we're, we're a set of bad ideas. And one of those ideas is that there are experts within the state whose job it is to direct us in our lives. That's the idea that has to be buried. Well, I'd like to welcome you to Freedom Feature. And with me today, I have a special guest, Professor Bruce Party. And he's a law professor. And it's so happy to have you with us, Bruce. Thanks, Barry. Thanks for having me. Uh, so right now, I am the executive director of Rights Probe, which is a division of the Energy Probe Research Foundation. And in that context, we're working with, uh, with a bunch of really interesting, smart people, uh, largely on uh, COVID lockdown and, and, and mandate uh, policies and so on. I've been a law professor for about 30 years uh, in New Zealand and uh, briefly in the States and, uh, and, then, and then here in Canada. Practiced law for a little while, early sat for a while as an adjudicator on the Ontario Environmental Review Tribunal. But, uh, you know, otherwise I consider myself um, a bit of a dabbler. Okay. Yeah, well, I I guess there's uh, lots in that company, including myself, it seems. I just wonder, Bruce, as you're leading out in Rights Probe, can you just tell us a little bit about that work and um, what the objectives are and what you're you're doing there? Not to put too fine a point on that. We're we're, we're trying to be uh, an independent uh, voice. Uh, In this moment, when independent voices are more important than ever and there are there are a good number of them now working on this problem which is terrific but part of the problem that brought us to this place is the 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 dominance of our institutions you know our 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 media our uh, corporate entities our governments our public institutions like universities and so on they're all seem to be speaking from the same voice and I don't mean that in the conspiratorial kind of way. I'm sure nobody's written a memo saying, here's what you feel say. It's just that they're all very much on the same page. And it's very difficult to, to hear other perspectives on things. And partly for that reason, there are a lot of people out there, professionals included, and perhaps professionals especially, who hesitate to speak out of line. And as time goes on, more and more, we're beginning to resemble a a different kind of society than the one that we think we live in, Mm. where people are free to speak their minds and say what they think and express opposing points of view without running into danger of being punished, either in some official or unofficial way. It's really quite alarming to see the trend over time about, about how free people feel. Sometimes it's not even the fact that there are rules. People are ruling themselves so as to avoid getting into all different kinds of trouble. Right. And so there's this self-censure that is going on. And and it strikes me as when, when you read uh, people like Alexander Solzhenitsyn, you see that kind of self-censorship that's, you know, the lack of trust. You don't, you can't trust your neighbors. You don't know if they're going to squeal on you or or that kind of oppressive mindset that causes people to lose their freedom voluntarily, really, in a, in a sense, because they they they're it's voluntary in the sense that you are self-censoring. Yes, right. And and this, of course, is is part of the origin of the term political correctness. Yes. Right. You know, people toss off that term as though, well, that's just politically incorrect. But but the whole concept, as I understand it, of political correctness was to was to emphasize the importance of adopting a version of things that was politically correct as opposed to actually correct. And it was the alternative to the actual truth mm. and represented danger. If you didn't do that, if you didn't adopt the politically correct version of things, then suddenly, we're talking about the Soviet Union now, suddenly you were in real danger of, of being subject to, to sanctions, either official or unofficial. Political correctness as a term is sort of now becoming sort of almost out of date, but it's the idea is still around. It is very much in play in this COVID period where certain kinds of professionals and, and, and doctors are the first group to come to mind. Mm. have basically been told that they are not allowed 
not allowed to express medical opinions about certain COVID policies that run against the official narrative. And, you know, that 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 is an extraordinary thing to contemplate in the here and now. Well, it's extraordinary because their very profession depends, at least historically, depends upon the individual practitioner to determine looking at the case that's before them based mm. on their experience, based on their education, and to make a proper uh, self-educated judgment as to how best to treat the the patient that's in front of them. And now they're saying, well, no, sorry, but that is inappropriate in this particular matter. Right. Well, see, there's, a, there's a parallel for me. I'm not sure if this works, but let me try it on you. Okay. So the parallel to that situation, the, to the doctor-patient relationship, the principle being that only the doctor who's examined the patient mm. is in a position to make a diagnosis. Right. And, and the, the parallel for me is that only the judge who's in the courtroom, who's heard the evidence, is in a position to find facts because you need the evidence to know what the facts are. Right. And when we wander outside of that idea, when, when people who are not the adjudicator and have not heard the evidence start to proclaim what the result's going to be, it's sort of the same as the college of physicians and surgeons or other people coming in and saying to the doctor who's examined the patient, well, I'm sorry, no, you don't, you don't get to determine this. Mm. We are going to tell you what conclusions you can and cannot come to. And so when a, when a doctor examines a patient and gets the history and gets the diagnosis and decides on the basis of that doctor's medical assessment that, for example, this person, you know, really shouldn't probably get a vaccine because of the low risk and the high, the low, the low risk of disease and the high risk of the, of the treatment. And yet, you know, they're, they're, they're being told that they, they can't do that except within a very narrow band being yeah, and- chosen by somebody else. And, and it's very, very narrow. I, I was speaking with an individual recently who informed me that she has a heart condition. And because of that heart condition, knowing that the vaccines have uh, been known to cause myocarditis and so forth, um, yep. that so she was uh, concerned about that. She went and she saw her cardiologist. The cardiologist said, you know what? You are a... Uh, a situation that I would recommend not to take the vaccine, but I can't tell you that. Right, right. And nor can I give you an exemption because if I were to give you a medical exemption, I will lose my license. That's incredible to me. Like, I mean, how is it that we've come here? How, how did this happen? Well, that's a, that's a very good question. My thinking is that we've been on the road here for a long time. And this all seems very sudden with COVID, right? You, you, right. People can see the problems now because they've become apparent and become extreme. But for my money, this has been under development for a long time. And COVID is just a thing that has made it apparent as opposed to the thing that's actually pushed the thing over the edge. It's the catalyst, as it were, I guess. Exactly, the catalyst, the straw that breaks the camel's back, if you like. Mm. Uh, but but we've, we've been traveling down this route for a long time. And we've, we, we have a managerial state that has grown and grown and grown and grown. And one of the premises of the managerial state is expertise. The state contains people who know best what it is we should all do. And their job is to direct us as to how to, to, to obtain sort of collective uh, prosperity without rocking the boat too much. And that is a proposition which is at the heart of the COVID problem because that idea has been taken and, 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 and run with. And anybody who objects to COVID protocols gets this sort of thrown back in their face. Well, you know, we we do this, I mean, we've done it for a long time. This is the role that public health officials and others are supposed to have. And this is not extraordinary. And so, you know, be quiet. And to some extent, they're right. This kind of, of delegated authority to make discretionary judgment calls in the, in quote, the collective good is not a new thing that, no. that's been put in place for a long, long time. Mm-hmm. And and so it's much harder to object to. The dominant COVID narrative is starting to starting to fail, right? It's starting right. to fade. Yep. And the challenge I think is going to be this: is this just the end of the COVID regime? Or is this the end of the ideas that led us to this kind of problem? Are we going to have the guts to say, no, no, no? At the at the heart of this problem 
we're, we're a set of bad ideas. And one of those ideas is that there are experts within the state whose job it is to direct us in our lives. Mm. That's the idea that has to be buried, I think. Right. You're spot on here about it having such a long gestation time here. The courts have been giving deference to the state and the administrative state, the bureaucracy, uh, for such a long period of time. We saw it, the Hutter and Brethren case, for those of our listeners, it involved the Alberta Hutterite Brethren colony that uh, refused to get their picture taken for their driver's license. Alberta, for 29 years, had given them uh, accommodation, but then suddenly changed course and said, no, they must now have their pictures taken. And then the Supreme Court of Canada Ignoring the 29 years of accommodation says, no, the government now has a very good policy for protecting against identity theft and so forth. And and so now we're going to defer to the experts. Then we saw the Trinity Western University Law School case where the experts, i.e. the law society at that time, said that, well, you know, because of charter values, this is not even in the charter, but now suddenly we're going to defer to the law society. And if they feel this violates their char- the charter values of the work that they are doing, totally disregarding the rights of the university at that point. And again, just a total deference towards the administrative state. And now I, I'm sensing from some of the practitioners I've talked to who have taken cases to the courts here now in Canada, they're getting the same message that the courts are not interested in these cases dealing with the vaccine mandates because they're not scientists. Right. But so this is one of the ironies about the Constitution and the Charter, right? The, the administrative state is not provided for in the Constitution. One of my favorite paragraphs is in the uh, the Como case, the, the Free the Beer case. Oh, yes. Which, which considered uh, Section 121 of the 1867 Constitution, right. which basically was a, was a was a provision that said that we are a, you know a free trade nation. We're not supposed to have barriers between provinces. Right. And there's a great paragraph in there, and I, I can't quote it uh, uh, directly, but it basically says, "Oh, you know, oh my God, oh my God, we can't have that because that would mean that the, the you know the, all the government policies, and programs, and so on wouldn't be able to have wouldn't be able to carry on." So what they did essentially was say. Look, the administrative state is so important that we cannot give this provision of the Constitution the meaning that its words suggest. Right. So we are going to override the text in favor of this other idea that is not in the Constitution at all. Okay, so basically the court, what it did was amend our Constitution without using the amending formula. In other words, we've never, us, all of us who are out here listening to this program today, the court has basically said, you know what? You don't have a say. Your representatives don't have a say because we can amend our Constitution. Right. But of course, you know, this happens all the time when yep. the court interprets the Constitution and gives it a meaning, right? I, You know, there's lots of other examples, as you know. Yep. I mean, one of my favorites is, is Section 15 of the Charter. You know, the equality provision, which says, you know, every person has an equal right to equal treatment of the law and the yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Uh, And then then part two of section 15 says essentially, well, there's an exception to part one, which is if you have a special program to alleviate historical disadvantage, then okay. Section 15, one has basically been completely, and this is my my own take on it, has basically been reinterpreted by the Supreme Court to, to mean the same thing as as the second part, which is, no, no, it doesn't mean equal treatment. It means equal outcomes. Equal and, outcomes. and both parts require substantive equality, which, as far as I'm concerned, by a plain reading of the words in the, t- in the two parts is simply not what it says. Right. So that's just one example of, of a whole lot of, of examples where the court is essentially effectively amending the constitution by just interpreting the words in a particular way as as opposed to the other way. And, and and that's what's brought us into sort of this, this era, if you like, of the verges on judicial supremacy, Mm -hmm. right? Prior to all all these COVID troubles, the different camps, the different sort of political camps or ideological camps around 
tended to have particular views about the charter and the constitution and how it should be dealt with and so on. And that camp, which might have said in a previous era, well, you know what? The charter is not a great thing, but if we're going to have a charter, then it should be read strictly and textually and not creatively and not living tree wise. Uh, We should just sort of contain it. And we should have legislative supremacy is a better idea, um, a sounder idea than judicial supremacy. Mm-hmm. Okay, I mean, I'm partial to that. Yep. But, but now because of COVID, things are sort of flipped. Those people who perceive that legislatures and executive branches are now imposing upon civil liberties and are now looking to the charter to protect them and finding that the courts are now doing what they were asking them to do on other issues. The courts are now being strict about it, saying, no, 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 this is not an expansive thing. We're not going to expand your rights so it's to protect you from COVID rules. No, 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 we're going to defer to the government. We, we didn't do that, by the way, in a whole bunch of other cases where people were asking for expansive rights because right. those were progressive claims. That's right. So we gave full reading to those. That's right. But in your situation, so everything, everything's now, everything now is flipped. Right. And one of the difficult questions is, well, do you prefer legislative supremacy or do you prefer judicial supremacy? Because there's downsides to both. Mm-hmm. Judicial supremacy means that you've got a bunch of unelected people with the final say over what social policy is like in the country. Right. And lots of us have long said that's not a good idea. But legislative supremacy has sort of been the source of the problem that we're in now. Legislatures have enacted statutes that enable regulations that give uh, the delegate powers to public health officials to basically make up the rules as they go. And that's a, a, a thing that the legislatures have done. And so if you don't have judicial supremacy, that's what you get. That's what you've got right now. Mm-hmm. So. Those are sort of right now, it sort of seems like those are two bad choices and uh, it's really hard to choose between them. And the bottom line problem is we've lost an idea about how this is supposed to work and what kind of scope people are supposed to have over their own lives. Mm. And all the branches of government, the three branches of government are sort of cooperating together in squeezing the individual and, and making everything subject to a collective consideration. Part of that legislative process has been that we would have opposition parties that would raise the issues and say, hey, administrative state, hey, executive, you need to be concerned about what's happening here with your overreach. And we're not getting that right now in the COVID era. I mean, basically everyone is buttoning up and any time that anyone speaks against the narrative, they are labeled anti-science, racist, misogynist. And what do you do with these people? Tell me. <laughs> so we're, we're in a moment in Canadian politics where all, all the main parties, all the parties with status, all the parties with, for the most part, with people in parliament are really singing from the same book. Yes. They, they, they're all essentially progressive parties. You know, the, the, the details are a little different, but not really. Mm-hmm. And they're all anxious to adopt the mainstream view. There's not really much to choose between them, I'm afraid. We have those who are trying to establish themselves um, from the outside. Mm-hmm. And we'll see how that goes over time. But for, for the time being, the, the, the political arena is being dominated by different stripes of the same idea. Is it just simply we want to get in with the, uh, like I'm just thinking for those parties, for example, Her Majesty's loyal opposition are supposed to be there speaking up against the various policies. And part of our understanding or our tradition has been that that the opposition, our loyal opposition, in the sense that they're loyal to the crown, they're loyal to the organization, to, to the way our state is set up, but they're not loyal to the government in the sense of just kowtowing to everything the government wants to do, but is simply raising ideas that are different from what the government is doing because 
we had this notion, it seems to me, that the way in which we find out how we are to do proper policy is to allow for open and full debate. But now there is zero debate. I mean, so zero that we had a piece of legislation that was uh, considered in the previous parliament so, uh, controversial, but yet it was passed unanimously within seven days. I, yeah. I mean, there, there, there was no discussion. And yet apparently there was something like 290 people uh, wanting to speak to it and they didn't sure. even allow it. Our Canadian version of of the the British system of government is not working out very well. Even I, from what I can tell from a distance, it looks like even the British version, although it's working better than ours, it's <laughs> it's not great. Part of, the, part of the problem is that the separation of powers between the executive branch and the legislative branch in this version of things is weak, right? Because right. you have the same right. people at the head of both these branches right. Right. and they're setting the agenda for, for, for both both branches in theory, you know, you, you get you get the legislature to pass statutes that gives the executive delegates executive powers to do what it, what it needs to do. Well, that's all very well if they if the head of the executive branch is also the head of the legislative branch determining, you know, what what bills the party will pass. The American version, people would say, is not working very well either. And there's something to be said that way. But it does seem to have at least more fight in it than what we have right now, because you actually have separate branches. You have the, the head of the executive branch at both the federal level and the state level, a different person, a different person elected to that particular position, heading the administrative operations of, of the jurisdiction versus the local state legislators or the or, or Congress in Washington who, who are independent of mm. that president or the governor or the, or as the case may be. And that creates conflict, but actually conflict is a good thing. When yeah. you're talking about democratic government, you want disagreement and you want debate and you want to reveal what the different choices are so you can argue about it. Right. We don't really have that in Canada for the most part right now. I remember uh, Jeffrey Simpson, the Globe and Mail journalist uh, some years ago, probably about 20 odd years ago when um, um, John Cretchen was the prime minister and he called him the elected dictator and had mm. uh, the front cover. I can still see it now. It was kind of like one of those third world dictators with all the uniform on and all the rest of it. And, th and this was Cretchen. And he raised a great point in that book about the, how the role of the prime minister has come to be that whatever he or she says, that's it. I mean, everyone falls into line. And that does not have to be. It's not part of our Constitution. It's just simply the acquiescence of the members in the House accepting the authority of the prime minister and the prime minister's office. And now the prime minister's office has now become this monolithic on its own that is uh, seeking to, you know, direct policy and all the rest, and even cabinet members now, as we've seen under this current uh, government, uh, you know, can be shuffled off at will without too much trouble. And, and, it, and it strikes me that uh, we almost need a rethink of exactly how we, how, what we expect as Canadians of our prime ministers. Um, sure. You can see this in operation at the provincial level as well, right? In Ontario, you've had... I mean, to their credits, you have a handful of MPPs who were with the government and then got thrown out because they didn't go along with the COVID policies. You know, you've got you've got um, Randy Hillier and Robin Baber and uh, Belinda Carahelios and uh, Rick Nichols, who are all out now. They're out of out of the out of caucus, yeah. no longer part of the part of the party. And in order to to change the system of government, the way it operates, you sort of need more of those people to say, you know what? Yeah, I'm part of the party, but I'm also an independent uh, person elected by my constituents to represent a point of view. And uh, an expression of difference is something that is tolerated in other systems. You'll see that in, in the UK with conservative right. backbenchers. Right. 
not agreeing, openly not agreeing with the policies that the prime minister's office has has brought forward and not automatically being thrown out of caucus. I mean, there's, t- there's tension to be sure. I mean, I've mm-hmm. heard of all kinds of 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 um, <laughs> of nasty stuff going on, but but it seems to be less of an absolute faux pas in that system than it seems to be here. COVID has now become this catalyst. We see some horrendous flaws developing where we've lost our freedoms and freedom of speech, freedom freedom of uh, the professional practitioners to be able to uh, carry out their work. Right. How then do we as a country, how do we as Canadians fight back against this elected dictatorship, uh, using Jeffrey Simpson's words? Well, I mean, the, the best example are those people who are just not doing it. Whether it's truckers or people in the supermarket not wearing a mask or not agreeing to have your kids jabbed or, or, or you know, as the case may be, you're just saying, no, you know what? Uh-uh, I'm not doing this. And sometimes those things enact a personal toll. I mean, people have lost their jobs or been right. threatened with suspension. Right. Uh, you know, university students have been thrown out of school. Um, there's there's a cost to all of this, and you know you have to you have to respect those people who have who have said, you know, I there are consequences, but I'm just I'm just not going to be told what to do. And changes when enough people say that when we get to a critical mass of people. And I think it is, I think it's coming. Mm. I think it's coming. I think the weight of the data and the differences from country to country is becoming such that the thing might be maybe, maybe it's just a maybe, but might be on the verge of collapsing under its own weight. We'll just have to wait and see, but it does depend upon the people. Some of the people thought this would all be put aside when you know cases were brought to court yeah. to challenge yep. the constitutionality of the rules, for example. Right. That that hasn't happened. It's not not for lack of trying. Several cases have been brought and heard on different aspects of of the COVID regime, and just for the most part, simply have not been successful. Courts are not are not persuaded. They're not open to the arguments. Mm-hmm. And so, I mean, I'm hoping, I'm hoping the, these efforts will continue, but I don't think that will be the thing that breaks the, the, the camel's back. It's got to be a critical mass of people who basically say, we're done with this. This is enough. You've gone too far and we got to roll it back. You know, it reminds me of the piece written by, again, Alexander Solzhenitsyn, who said not to live by lies and in their own sphere, do not live by a lie. And if the government is lying and you are going to carry out the government's lie in your own little sphere, wherever that is, just say no. Let let the lie come into the world. Let it even triumph, but not through me. Me. If enough people say that, then the lie does not triumph. And it's hard to get... People to do that because, as I say, there's costs, especially when it's not clear that everyone's going to do it. But, the, the you know, the few brave souls who start and show that it's possible will give courage to others and you'll start the ball rolling. And it's, it's very important. And what we've seen, of course, uh, throughout history is that everyone is trying to determine exactly which way the wind is blowing. And we mm, see it right. with all kinds of parties. And I think... That is what's happening now, it seems to me, in even in the uh, opposition party in Ottawa, that there is this sense of, okay, well, maybe, you know, uh, I might talk to the truckers, but I may not talk to the truckers. It all depends on what the Canadian public does. Instead of on principle saying, no, here's where I stand. Like we need the old uh, Winston Churchill being willing to stand up in the midst of the caucus and say, I don't care what all of you guys say, but I have seen the evidence and Germany is in fact rearmoring. And why aren't we facing up to the reality? And until we uh, get to a point where an actual war breaks out, I mean, it's just it's that kind of personality type. You do, you do need a Churchill. I mean, a Churchill would be good right now. I, yeah. I, I'm, I'm, I've always been perplexed 
by, and maybe I shouldn't, maybe, maybe I really shouldn't be, but, but I've always been perplexed by sort of the, the, the career politician who seems to be in it, not for the purpose of promoting their ideas. They're, they're, they're in it, they're in it to survive for as long as they can. And it's, it's like they're, they're waiting for that pension to finally click. Sure. And, but that seems like a hollow enterprise to me. I would have thought Absolutely. that if you wanted to do to, 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 to devote your life to trying to obtain a position of power mm. that, that you would have a bee in your bonnet about what you wanted to accomplish when you got there. And so many people, when they're, when they're there or on the verge of getting there, they're so anxious to get there and stay there that they'll do whatever it takes to accomplish that objective as opposed to the policy or principled objective that they might've started with. But maybe I'm being naive. Maybe, maybe most politicians today just don't think that way. I don't know. Situations like this will raise up people. Like, I mean, there are people who are willing to say, I don't care what happens to me, but this is where I stand. And I think, I think there is this mindset, even among the the most hated individuals right now, these people, as the prime minister called them, the unvaccinated people, um, who basically have come to the point, uh, I call it the Clark Gable point, you know, frankly, my Ah. dear. (laughs) Right. Right. And, you know, it's like, and I think people have come to that. And perhaps that's what we're starting to see unfold across this country right now, because as we speak, there are truckers from every corner of the country are rolling towards Ottawa. I call them the um, the drawers of water and the hewers of wood of our economy. The very ones that are the backbone, that are providing yes. the spinach yes. in the yes. in the aisle every week for yep. us. I don't think it's, it's any. I don't think it's any 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 um, coincidence that it's it's truckers and not the professional class. Yes, who are who are leading here? I mean, there are, there are a few very important doctors, for example, who have stuck their neck out and said very important things at very high risk of themselves, and I give them full credit. But as a profession, uh, uh-uh, uh, they no, not, they've not delivered. But the interesting thing about the truckers, apparently, and look, seems to be the case, that an awful lot of the truckers who are driving towards Ottawa right now are themselves vaccinated. Yes, and they're not against the vaccine. Right. They are against the idea that their that their that their compatriots should be required and made to do a standard thing. And and I give them full credit for having the the the, the principles and the and the devotion to those principles to to take this stand. I mean, good on them. I mean, thank goodness they're willing to. I don't know who else would have come forward. Yeah, no, absolutely. And and you know, isn't this interesting? The truckers. Not the uh, so-called elites or, uh, you know, the opinion makers, the policy right. makers, the, right. the yep. university professors, the university administrators, um, all of the institutional organizations, even, um, you know, uh, even among a lot of other uh, charities that I would have thought would have come out by now. But it seems to me that the current mindset is that you will be uh, receiving government largesse if you toe the line. But if you don't toe the line, then things like your charitable status or your uh, extra money that was going uh, to your particular civic organization or uh, whatever it is, uh, that's going that that's on the line now. There's the, that. There's, there's, there's that sort of practical almost almost like bribery yes um but there's also something else going on as well with a lot of people i think which is that a lot of the elite class believe in the idea that the elite class should be in a position to tell people what to do i mean they really a lot of them really believe that that they're that they are needed to direct how society shall unfold right and 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 that's what that's what the covid thing is based upon and so perhaps it's not much of a surprise that the people at the truckers say, I'm an independent person. I have an independent business. I'm going to do my care. 
I'm going to handle my own person, my own body, my own way, you know, get out of my way. And, and that's something that 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 a, a, a good proportion of the elite class has not been willing to say. They're not, they're not been willing to challenge the legitimacy of their own authority. Great point. Yeah. And failing to understand that the truckers themselves and even those uh, of the truckers who are unvaccinated, they're quarantining every day. Yeah. I mean, you know, I mean, <laughs> like we heard, of course, over in France, uh, Macron who uh, basically said he wants to PO all of the unvaccinated so that they ultimately get the jab. And right. one can't help but think if the um, if the same kind of thinking among the Ottawa mandarins uh, were not of the same uh, elk when they um, made the policy they did about the truckers. Well, I'm, I'm going to be interested to see how long they stick with this story in the face of mounting evidence mounting data that shows that it's ridiculous yeah that the, yeah. the, the vaccine does not actually prevent transmission sharing it with others and there's the, the justification that that maybe somebody might have thought at the beginning made sense mm. makes no sense now i just want to i'll just be interested to see how long they insist upon sticking with the narrative even after it's clear to most people that actually this doesn't make any sense. And, and, and frankly, the longer, I mean, I hate to say, say this, but the longer they stick with it, the longer they insist upon it in the face of this kind of evidence, the more they will undermine the bigger idea that I mentioned at the beginning. And that might be a good thing because yeah. that will demonstrate to all of us that hold on here. We've got a, we've got a much more fundamental problem with the way we're thinking about this. Mm-hmm. There's been such a, a, a track record of error here and overreach here based upon the premise that you guys know best. Right. And you guys clearly do not know best. We just can't have this set up anymore. Which is going to be a revolutionary concept to the uh, to the this thinking class or whatever you, you want to call them, the mandarins, because they, they'll now... Uh, suddenly the tables will turn. Uh, this is one of the things that I'm wondering. If if the tables do turn, as they have often throughout history, um, in revolutionary moments, and I'm wondering if we're not coming to a, you know, a revolutionary type moment where suddenly they are now going to be on the receiving end of derision. Because it's not going to take too many more people who are suffering loss um, who, with their backs against the wall, like the truckers, who say, you know what, enough's enough. And what happens then? Uh, what happens then when uh, when we get this change of the tables? I think the challenge will be to get to that situation you're describing. The danger is that the COVID thing itself will fade away, but be, just re, be replaced by something else. You know, that the, probably the leading the leading candidate is climate change. You know, mm. it's, not the, it's not the COVID emergency anymore. It's the climate change emergency. And we're going to need new, new rules, new lockdown rules or new restrictions in order to deal with this emergency in kind of the same way as well. And you're going to do this because we're still the experts. We might have mucked up COVID, but, you know, <laughs> we're really still the experts. And you guys really don't know how to manage society and the collective good. And we know that. And so, you know, forget the COVID debacle. Let's just move on. That yeah. That's the real danger, that, that this that will is. not actually trigger any real fundamental change in the way we do things and the way we think about them. If we do have that sort of moment of truth that you're describing, then great. And how it will unfold, I'm not sure. It might be full of conflicts. Yeah, I know, and and that's the part that I'm not too comfortable on. That's for sure. Right, yep. and 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 history does tell us that, right? I mean, over and over again, we see so many examples where where conflict does arise with when these kinds of pressures build, and we have no idea what lays ahead, right? I mean, we've got the 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 possibility of actually international conflict, and we've got the economy that's uh, struggling right now, and and so forth. So, so there are a lot of uh, multiple factors here. I know our time is moving along, but I I, I want to. Uh, talk about two more points, if I may, if I can just indulge. And I, I'll start with this one first, the whole issue of censoring the internet. The prime minister, this was 
uh, part of his platform. This was uh, part of, uh, he actually introduced legislation uh, in the last parliament. Um, and now it's not yet introduced, but uh, probably coming up soon. Uh, and it strikes me that in the uh, context of our COVID-19 crisis, we have a government that is also planning on putting forward legislation that's limiting what can be said on the internet and and so forth. Well, it's probably safe to say it's not about what it is claimed to be about. <laughs> I mean, just, just imagine if the content on the internet was being supervised during this COVID era more than it is already. You know, the, the, the Twitters of the world are doing their own censorship, but just imagine that the government was had, having a hand in that. We might not be where we are now with what we understand to be the case with the circulation of of all kinds of interesting stuff from all over the world, you know, um, medical studies and data and 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 individual reports and and so on. I mean, this has been a lifeline for figuring out what may actually be happening. And if you had government control over the content on the internet, you just might we might be in a much worse position today than otherwise would have been. Now, of course, the claim is that. They're not talking about that degree of censorship. They just want to, you know, they want to tamp down on hate speech and right. that kind of thing. But hate speech is code for speech I don't like. Right. Right. right? And that's one of the differences between the uh, U.S. Bill of Rights and, and our freedom of expression protection in the charter. I mean, in the States, as I understand it, basically governments are not allowed to to restrict what they might call hate speech because of the right to free, free expression. Mm -hmm. Whereas in Canada, I mean, we have all kinds of restrictions that exist already, not even worrying about what's coming down the pipe. We, we already have rules that limit what you can say in Canada, whether it's online or otherwise. Mm -hmm. uh, and it, and it's, it's much more extreme than people I think understand already. Yeah. It's, it's, yeah. Nothing, it's nothing, but it's nothing but bad. There's no question about it. And, and uh, certainly as we've had this experience, like you said, we probably would have been under uh, even more tyrannical uh, censorship than what the big tech has given. Okay, next one is the final one that I want to talk to you about real quick. When I was in law school, Ian Hunter, who is a great law professor I enjoyed very much, I was in high school when uh, the Queen came over and signed the Constitution Act of 1982. Uh, and... Um, you know, is this cold, relatively cold, wet day in Ottawa? And I wasn't there, but I was in Oshawa. And I remember thinking that, you know, everyone in school, everyone was talking about, oh, you know, finally Canada gets its uh, Bill of Rights, as it were, the Charter of Rights. And, and there was a lot of pomp on it in school. There was a lot of discussion on it. And, and uh, but when I got to law school, I got to see a different complicated mindset with respect to the charter, certainly in Ian's class. And Ian was basically of the view that the charter was an absolute unnecessary document and unnecessary because it was going to put the judges in control of this country and that um, we have no idea, no, con no real control over what's happening. And he made reference, and I've become a fan, actually, of uh, Justice Ivan Rand over the years with respect to his decisions in the 1950s and 60s, dealing with freedom uh, at that time. For our listeners at, at that time in Canada, uh, we were having issues where the Jehovah's Witness group was being challenged in the province of Quebec and it seemed like it was case after case dealing with Jehovah's Witnesses and uh, led to a lot of um, great decisions by the Supreme Court at the time without a charter. And this was Ian's point. There was no charter. There was no Bill of Rights at that time. And yet the court was still able to come to a understanding of rights that even pre-existed the state. He called them original freedoms, Justice Rand. But now we have the charter. It's been 40 years. What is your take on the charter? Good thing, bad thing, combination of? It hasn't uh, been as good as billed. And in fact, in some ways, I would say that's probably been detrimental. I mean, so it, it appears to be a roster of negative individual rights. That's that's what I believe it was meant to be for the most part. There are exceptions, but for the most part. Right. But it's 
slowly been transformed into an excuse to curb rights in the collective interest and and redefine the rights so that they sort of have the same effect. And and we talked about section 15 earlier. I think that's one of the best examples. Yeah. So I'm I'm not a fan of what the charter has become. On the other hand, I'm not sure that not having any kind of document is a panacea either, because if you if you adopt the theory that, well, there are certain pre-existing rights that come before the state even, mm-hmm. and you're relying upon the judiciary to interpret what those rights are and were, you're almost in the kind of the same situation as with the written document. You've given right. them the job of saying, all right, well, what, what, what are the pre-existing rights? Mm. And now you don't even have a text. Right. Now you've got an unwritten constitution and they can sort of reach out into the air and pull something down and say, well, I, I, I know I'm going to tell you that our rights consist of this. Right. Well, how do you, how do you know that? Where'd you get that from? Yeah. And, and, and so the, the whole thing is supposed to be a, 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 a system of checks and balances, right? The, right? the courts are supposed to restrict the legislatures. The legislature is supposed to limit the, 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 the absolute authority of the courts. The people are supposed to elect the legislatures and give them legitimacy, but we don't want the legislatures to go too far. We don't want the executive branch to be out of control, but to be limited by the legislatures. And none of these branches are doing the, that job. As I said earlier, they're all in it together. And so I'm not sure whether having a charter or not having it would fix the problem. I mean, we still have that basic rule that a statute can override the common law. Mm. Doesn't you know they do they do that all the time? And so right. it's the right. rights we're talking about are common law rights, and you know, even deeply embedded common law rights. If you have a statute that explicitly says, well, you know, we had right X in the common law, but we're we're getting rid of that. Mm. What, what, what would a court then do hmm. without a charter, without a constitution? Or would a court say, well, if the legislature has spoken and the legislature is elected, but they're wiping out rights, should I allow them to do that? And now you're right back where you started from with, with a kind of judicial supremacy. So there's no neat answer to this. We want all these people in power to restrain themselves. Right. In the way that they encroach upon our ability to decide our things for ourselves. And right now, none of them are doing that. I love the um, the idea you're suggesting that everyone has a role and they should be following those roles, i.e. legislature, uh, executive, judiciary, and so on. And the problem is, one of the things I've noted with the charter is that the legislatures are actually giving up their role, yes. saying, yes. let's see what the yes. court says yes. about the charter. Yes. Absolutely. I mean, I, you, you remind me of, I, I gave evidence in front of the Senate committee that was considering uh, Bill C-16. That's the one that added uh, gender identity and expression to the Canadian Human Rights Code. This is 2018, right. maybe. I mean, one of the points I was trying to make is, look, it's it's not clear in the, in the bill what you mean. I mean, do you mean this to affect speech? Do you mean this to demand that people adopt other people's pronouns? I mean, you can at least tell us what you mean. Hmm. Is that is that a yes or a no? And one of the senators replied, or, or I guess asked me a question, saying, well, well, why don't we just send it to the court hmm. <laughs> to, to yeah. decide what it should be? And I said, you're the legislator. Yeah. Why do you want to give your policy decision, your principal decision, to a court as opposed to deciding for yourself what it is that you want? You won't even decide what it is that you mean. Right. You want to fob that job off onto the court. So they're all in this together. They're yeah. all in this together. And the legislature is also passing statutes and has been doing so for a while, delegating huge authority, huge discretion to the executive branch of government, mm. which is why it's very difficult to challenge these discretionary orders and so on, because they're actually provided for in the statutes and in the regulations. Right. So, so that it's it's all a it's a, it's. I'm not saying that they're never in conflict these branches because they often are. Yeah. But but in general, they're they're on the same page. But they're only in conflict. It seems to me 
from my observation, over money. Like, give me more well, money so I can uh, do more things with it, um, as opposed to uh, fighting over jurisdiction. Although, mind you, there are there are jurisdictional fights between the federal and provincial governments. That definitely well, that's for sure. there. But you can you can also look to cases where the legislature or the executive branch has done something that the court doesn't think is sufficiently progressive. Well, so you know, in the Fraser case, a little while you know, a couple of years yeah. ago, um, you had this uh, this this new. Um, Working arrangement being put in by the RCMP would, would allow uh, their people to work part time if they wanted to. And, and if you decided to work part time, which is totally voluntary and open to everybody, mm-hmm. and if you decided to do that, then there was a there was a pension plan to go along with it that would pay you a pension in proportion to the hours that you chose to work, and it was available to men and women alike. And and it was challenged as contrary to Section 15. And the reason the, the the ground for arguing was contrary to Section 15 was that more women than men were choosing to opt in to work part-time. And because they were more women than men opting in, the result of that was that these women who were working part-time were going to get lower pensions at the end of their careers than the men who were working full-time. Now, that was totally proportional to the work that they were doing. Yeah, but, but it was also their choice. The result of their choice and that 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 was that was a choice that that the RCMP was making in, in conjunction with with the government, and the court came along and said, "Oh no no no, that's not substantive equality. Right. If you're providing an opportunity for women than men equally, and more women than men are choosing it, so as so as to disadvantage themselves, then that is unconstitutional." Because of Section 15 of the Charter. Right. Right. So that's a situation where they're actually not getting along. The court wants them to go further than they're going. It's fascinating when we see the ideological positioning. And then this is part of what the problem is, it seems to me, is that we don't have a collective understanding. What do we what we mean by freedom? What we mean by equality? What do we mean by uh, the collective interest or the public interest? That's one that strikes me as laying at the base of a lot of this, and it and it comes down to ideological positions. Bruce, Professor Party, the the takeaway from our discussion here today is that if we want to be free, if we truly want to be free. We have, as individuals in our own right, got to ensure that we're not lying. We are not going to be living the lie for government, but we're going to stand up for truth, that we elect representatives who themselves are going to operate to ensure that they carry out their role and that we have a understanding and system of government where there's checks and balances and where we don't have this ideological conformity that we certainly see at this point in our experience as a country. Not easy to say, but even more difficult to do. Right. Well, listen, I just want to thank you so very much for uh, just sitting down, as it were, uh, on this cold evening uh, to talk about things that we find so mutually uh, very interesting. And I'm sure that uh, there will be many others uh, who will find it interesting, but some of you may not find it interesting. In fact, you may even disagree with what we've been talking about from one item to another, but that's okay. That is what this Freedom Feature Program is all about. And that's what First Freedoms is all about, trying to enter into a dialogue on the important issues that are affecting freedom in Canada. And until next time, I'm Barry Bussey, and thank you for watching Freedom Feature. The fight for freedom consists not only in the legal battles in court, but also in the battle of ideas at the universities and in the media. It takes time, effort, and money to keep on top of the debates for freedom. Your donation allows us to keep fighting for all Canadians at firstfreedoms.ca.